Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year to all of you. I haven't seen you all in a... Oh, yeah, also. Hello to those in the sanctuary. Happy New Year to you, too. I haven't seen you all for about a month. I was on holiday in December. Uh, I was at Kampongkapo Methodist Church for Christmas. I wasn't here last week. So very happy to be back. Last week, Pastor Anthony kicked us off in this series on the Book of Romans. He talked about the beauty of the gospel and the calling of all of us to be unashamed of the gospel and to go and preach it. Pastor Anthony also reminded us of our church's mission to spread scriptural holiness across the land. As Christians, we are of course called to be a holy people, just as our God is holy. So today we are continuing our look at Romans. We're going to go through Romans chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 2, verse 11. And Pastor Anthony has asked me to preach a long sermon. So I will be reading my sermon twice. Let's look at Romans, uh, reading from chapter 1, verse 18. And here it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts of men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the richness of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of God. Come, let us pray. Father, I ask for your word to go out strongly, that it may touch all our hearts and speak to us deeply. Open our hearts and minds, Lord, to your word and give us understanding. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in December, uh, my wife and I had a glorious two weeks in Japan. Went to Osaka, Kyoto, uh, Tokyo, been there before and wanted to revisit these places. We met up with friends living in Tokyo, met up with Singaporeans uh, visiting Japan. And this time we also went to Mount Fuji and Hiroshima. A wonderful time. We came back before Christmas to find our kitchen flooded. Our water pipe had burst, water sprayed everywhere. 120 tons of water leaked out while we were away. So our lower kitchen cabinets were all soaked in water. I had to throw away almost everything stored under the sink. Wooden cabinets themselves were waterlogged. The laminate is warped, metal fittings all rusted, streaks of rust stained the wood. The wood is ruined and it's going to rot. I can't see the back of the cabinets. I can only see the warped laminate in front. But inside, I know the rot has started and it will only spread. The wood is going to turn back one day and it will spread slowly. It may take years. But if I don't replace the cabinets, they're all going to come crashing down one day. And that is the point Paul is making here also in this Bible passage. From chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 2, verse 16, Paul is saying that humankind is rotten at its core. And left unchecked, the rot and decay will spread. Left to ourselves, humans are going to crash down one day. Humankind 
is rotten because it has turned away from God. Humankind is rotten because of sin. How will the rot spread? Paul says from verses 18 to 21 that it begins with suppressing the truth of God and is followed by futile thinking and foolish hearts being darkened. As one theologian put it, the first sign of the creeping death that spreads from twisted thinking and a darkened heart is the failure of worship. The failure of worship. Instead of worshipping our Creator God, we turn to idols and images. Now, we may laugh, laugh now at these ancient persons that Paul was referring to who carved out gods of stone and wood to worship. But today, we have our own idols. We worship money, power, and sex. We make important decisions, life choices, based on how much money and power we will gain, based on who we want to have sex with. If we look again at verse 18, you will see two terms, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness is when humans fail to worship God. Can I have the next slide, please? And unrighteousness is when we turn away from God, when we become less like Him, when we go against His intentions, when we reject His truth. And the very first example that Paul gives of dishonorable passions, of human corruption, the very first example he gives is homosexual relations. Paul is talking of the human race as a whole. And what he's saying here in Romans chapter 1 is the fact that there are such distortions of the Creator's intentions for males and females is a sign that there's idolatry going on in humankind. Paul says the practice of same-sex relations indicates that the whole world is out of sync with God. Now, this issue of homosexuality is very divisive, and I would like to say a bit more about it. I'm sure many of you will already have formed your own opinions. We are fed a lot of opinions and images on social media, in the movies, on television nowadays. It's a very emotional topic, very divisive among Christians. In many instances, we have moved past biblical exposition into name-calling. Right? Evangelical Christians are labelled as homophobic, which is not accurate at all, because homophobia literally means fear of homosexuals. We are not afraid, but that's the label. And I feel sometimes people are no longer interested in what the Bible or the church has to say, or even what homosexual people have to say. They are more interested in drawing lines, in building walls, in labeling others. So let's recognize it's a very divisive issue. You don't have to agree with me. If you're unhappy with what I say and you want to vent afterwards, if you're angry, please feel free to write to me. My email in church is A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-L-E-E -E at etc. etc. At the start of this year, just a few days ago, United Methodist Church 
in America, the largest, the second largest Protestant denomination in the United States, announced a proposal to split over what it called fundamental differences regarding beliefs on same-sex marriage and LGBTQ clergy. It's just a proposal now and still has to be decided on. Theological stance aside, I think the issue is divisive because also of our own personal preferences. We each have our own stand on the issue. We think those who disagree then are not good Christians. They are terrible witnesses. Or we may know people who are homosexual. And we see that actually they are not demons. They are normal people, good people. So homosexuality cannot be wrong. I, I'm sure like some of you, have friends, family members who are homosexual. Or we may see ourselves as fair, open-minded, educated people. And it is progressive for us to be tolerant. Tolerance is a virtue society as a whole should have. Otherwise, how do we maintain harmony? Or we may have come across scientific studies, which may suggest that homosexuality has a genetic basis. So if you're born like that, it cannot be your fault. God made you like that, so that's okay. I should point out on 30th August 2019, the Straits Times published an article entitled No Gay Gene, but study finds genetic links to sexual behaviour. It's a report of a study that was first published in the journal Science. This study looked at the data of almost half a million people and found that there are thousands of genetic variants linked to same-sex sexual behaviour, most with very small effects. So the, the title doesn't give the full picture because only five genetic markers were significantly associated with same-sex behaviour. And even these five have a very small effect. And as the article says, they explain considerably less than 1% of the variance in the self-reported same-sex sexual behaviour. Oh, I just realised there's a, a small boy here. Cover his ears, please. <laughs> according to the article, this is a M18 thingy, but according to the article, this means that non-genetic factors such as environment, upbringing, personality nurture, as the article says, right, are far more significant in influencing a person's choice of sexual partner. So recent research shows that you are not born like that. For me personally, all this is irrelevant because I feel there must be one objective standard. And for me, it is the Word of God. It should be the same for Christians. So there are only two relevant questions we Christians have to ask. And the first is, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? The Old Testament is quite clear. In addition to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, we have two statements in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20 verse 13 says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. 
Some people say that these sections really deal with purity and ceremonial laws which no longer apply. The purity laws, for example, also forbid eating crabs and lobsters. Yeah, and I, for one, feel that all true Singaporeans must be able to eat chili crab with fried manto, fried, not steamed. So it's true we don't follow these purity laws now. But are these statements about homosexuality part of the purity law? You see, the punishment is death, which means the law is pretty serious. Death cannot be a punishment for violating a ceremonial law. So it's not a ceremonial law. Both chapters in Leviticus deal with sexual taboos like incest and adultery. Also, the word used is abomination. Nowhere else in Leviticus is abomination used when talking about purity laws. So not a purity law, not a ceremonial law, not outdated then. So some people say then, the whole Old Testament is outdated. We are New Testament people living under grace and not under the law. So let's look at what the New Testament says. We read the whole passage in Romans chapter 1. We read it earlier and it clearly speaks of homosexual acts as against nature. Chapter 1 verses 26 and 23 basically say that rebellion against God results in people living contrary to the intention of God. Now, is this passage in Romans the only passage against homosexual practices? No. We also have 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now here is part of verse 9. If you can see with the original Koine Greek, Common Greek, the Greek in which the Bible is written, uh, translation underneath, and you will see that when it comes to the phrase, nor, you see there, it says, neither the sexually immoral, so ute pornos, ute means no or not, pornos, from, we get the word pornography from pornos, so immoral, uh, ute idolates, latres, no idolaters, ute moikos, nor adulterers, but then when it comes to nor men who practice homosexuality, you see there are two utes. Ute malakos, ute arsenokoites. So we have two Greek words instead of one. Malakos refers to the passive homosexual partner. And arsenokoites refers to the active partner. The Bible condemns both partners in same-sex sexual behavior. It's quite clear. Some people have argued, no, this phrase refers to exploitative sexual behavior. The malakos is a catamite. It's a boy who's used for sex. This happened in Greek society. Uh, pedophilia was rife. It was acceptable. So it's a man 
exploiting a boy. Right, so this is what the Bible condemns. But this explanation, if you think about it, is just madness. What you're saying then is this phrase condemns the victim of sexual abuse. And if you come across a church that condemns the victim of a sexual abuse, you should walk out. That's not what the church does. That's not what this Bible verse is saying. Bible verse very clearly refers to two willing partners. It's quite clear. Then we have First uh, Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. And this is in the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, I'll explain why. But it reads, This means understanding that the law is laid down, not for the innocent, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching. Other Bible versions, after fornicators, they translate it, men who practice homosexuality. But in the Greek, this case, there's only one word that's used, asenokoitai. And so NRSV correctly translates that, sodomite, the active partner of the sexual act. Okay, so the conclusion must be then, the Bible is very clear about homosexual practice. It is a depravity of the body against nature and intentions of God. And people have done all sorts of mental gymnastics to explain away these verses. But the Bible is very clear about its stand. The only way out is to argue that the whole Bible is outdated, is time-bound, that it only speaks to that time in history. And so we have to apply it to our contemporary situation. Fine. But when both Old and New Testament are against it, our application today cannot be a bare rejection of the teaching. So the first relevant question is, what does the Bible say? And the Bible says homosexual practice is wrong. And therefore our stand of the Methodist Church is that we consider the practice of homosexuality to be incompatible with Christian teachings. Self-avowed practicing homosexuals are not to be accepted as candidates for ministry or ordained as pastors or proof to serve in churches. Every itinerant minister, that is every pastor, has to accept that the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teachings. But I think the second relevant question then is how can we love homosexuals? You see, very often our response to them is hatred and anger. But is that the way Christians are to respond? Are we called to hate or are we called to love? In our Methodist social principles, right after we say that we consider the practice of homosexuality to be incompatible with Christian teachings, we then immediately say, However, we do recognize that homosexual persons are individuals of sacred worth. They need the ministry and guidance of the church as well as the spiritual and emotional support of a caring fellowship. Because we're all created by the same loving and gracious God. We're all made in the image of our Heavenly Father. 
And if you look again at Romans chapter 1, the passage we read talks about a depravity of the body. But then it goes on to talk about a depravity of the mind, a debased mind. You see again what the whole passage says. And I want you to observe that sexual immorality, murder, evil-mindedness are listed side by side with people who disobey their parents, people who boast, who gossip, who are unforgiving and unmerciful, people who are ruthless. In other words, those who murder and who practice homosexuality are as bad as people with pride, people who gossip. Because if you break one part of the law, you have broken all the law. And how many people today do not have pride? How many of us have forgiven everybody? How many of us have never boasted? Who has never gossiped? We are just as bad as homosexuals. So do we go on a witch hunt for those who are untrustworthy, those who covet? Let us look instead at the example of Jesus in John chapter 7. And I'll leave you to read it yourself. But we have there the story of the woman who was caught in adultery, being brought together by an angry mob before Jesus. And the people want to stone her to death. First, Jesus reminds the people of their own sin. Because Jesus doesn't tolerate hypocrisy. We are all not pure. And we must not be the first to throw stones. This is what Romans says. right? You who do the same things, do not judge. The church has to repent also for the sin of neglect, hatred, and indifference towards homosexuals. Secondly, Jesus does not condemn the woman, but he doesn't condone her sin either. The challenge is for us in the church to find a similar balance. How can we not condone homosexuality without condemning people? And thirdly, Jesus is first the woman's friend before he confronts her sin. She is an outcast in danger of her life. People want to kill her. And Jesus is the one person on her side. Because he's on her side, he can say to her, go and sin no more. Because people will listen to their friends. We have to be a friend to all. If the world is out of sync with God, then the gospel is God's answer to problems in this world. The gospel tells us that there is forgiveness, there is love, there is membership in a new family, there is a new future. And because of what society has done, what some Christians have done, many homosexuals feel a lot of pain and rejection. They are struggling because we have not loved them. The church must be a place where people may love and be loved. It must be a home with a heart. And it must be a home with truth, compassion, and biblical integrity. And I think we can only love homosexual people if we have not only more tender hearts, but a clear understanding of the Word of God and the transforming power of faith. People must be transformed. Because as today's passage also says, there will be judgment. God will stop the rot. God will make the world right and get rid of all wickedness. God offers grace and love 
But if people reject his love and his ways, then they are heading for disaster. But the Bible says here, those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour immortality, he will give eternal life. God will reward. And so I want to end with this story of the time when I was a student at Trinity Theological College over 20 years ago. I was attached for a year to an Anglican missions organization that was then known as Missions to Seamen. Today it's called the Mission to Seafarers. But it is a 150-year-old organization that operates in 200 ports worldwide, caring for sailors or seafarers. Uh, when I was there in Singapore, there was a port chaplain who was uh, an Englishman. He was a former petty officer in the Royal Navy. He had a local assistant. There was me, the assistant, uh, student assistant. And then there was auntie. Auntie was Madam Wee Seok Kim, who started work at the missions as a house mother or caretaker in 1958. She took care of the building. She welcomed visitors. She served refreshments. She made tea for the chaplain. She made tea for me. She cleaned the floor. And as the years went by, she became known not as Madam Wee, but affectionately as Auntie, because she was an auntie in the true sense of the word, warm, caring, and loving, as the later port chaplain put it. One chaplain, Reverend Mervyn Moore, who held the rank of naval captain in the South African Navy, so that was the equivalent of a colonel by our standards, said many seafarers have come to know her as a very loyal and dedicated friend and mother away from home, who always has a ready ear to listen to problems, a willing shoulder to cry on, and when necessary, wise words of comfort. Now, in 2001, I was invited by the then port chaplain to Eden Hall on Nassim Road. It is the official residence of the British High Commissioner to Singapore. There was a special awards ceremony there. You see, in those days, the mission was run from London. London appointed port chaplains to Singapore, not the Anglican bishop in Singapore. London ran everything. And that year, in the Queen's birthday honours list, Queen Elizabeth II approved the conferring of an award in Singapore that the High Commissioner here was to present on her behalf. But the award did not go to the port chaplain who had served of an, on an aircraft carrier in the Royal Navy. It didn't go to his successor who had been a naval captain in the South African Navy. No, the Queen appointed Auntie as a member of the Order of the British Empire. And I watched as the High Commissioner, Sir Stephen Brown, invested Auntie with the honour. And then later, as Auntie was seated, she was 73 years old, the High Commissioner, Sir Stephen, knelt down beside her and on behalf of the Queen, thanked Auntie for her 40 years of service. And I will never forget the sight of the High Commissioner, a knight of the realm, kneeling before a caretaker. Whatever you may think of their colonial mentality, the British did the right thing in honouring and recognising Auntie for her years of self-giving love and service. Auntie, who cleaned the floor and greeted visitors and served tea. 
I think it's a reminder to all of us that God sees all that we do. And in due time, He will give us our reward. He watches not just the high and mighty, but all who serve in selfless love. And since God will judge us all, let us all repent of our sin and cling to God and His love and be the holy and righteous people He wants us to be. Come pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the righteous judge. You see all that we do and you will reward us. Help us, Lord, then, to give up all our sin, to turn to you and your ways and cling to you. Help us, Lord, draw nearer to you and to each other, to love you more, to love your people more. Help us, Lord, be the Christian you want us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we thank Reverend Dr. Chang Wing Shun for the very clear teaching from God's Word, completely aligned with him on this interpretation. Uh, so if you have any questions, do continue uh, to send me email. Uh, his email uh, is given to you. His email, which is my email, you know that. Uh, feel free to dialogue with me on this topic. Before we close uh, and cut off, I have the class meeting questions. Uh, put it up on the slide. So, first question as we go to our cell groups to share is this. Uh, look at the list of sins in Romans 1, 29-31, which he has preached on. It's not just homosexuality, but a whole list of sins. And so the question there is, which of these sins have you been clearly delivered from? And then the second question, how are you living in a way that truly demonstrates a penitent life? So the point here, note the questions, the way it's asked, uh, are not meant to stir up your religious pride, you know, not to feel that, whoa, I've overcome slandering or I've overcome homosexuality. If you approach the questions in this manner, that's the wrong attitude. That's already pride. But we want to, at the same time, recognize the power of God's grace, the power of the gospel, how we have been set free from these sins. And so we share with humility, testifying to God's grace and goodness, what God has done for us in our lives. And the second question is really to help us walk the straight and narrow path, which is the whole point of the class meeting that John Wesley set up in the first place. So these questions will be sent out to the cell leaders and cell members uh, so they can have a fruitful discussion.